Would you stand with me one final time this morning as we're going to dive into the message here in just a second. Um, We are in a series this summer on the book of Galatians, and today is a great day to be here. Uh, We get to be dropped in like a fly on the wall into one of the greatest moments in church history life where the Apostle Paul confronts the Apostle Peter. If I could go back in any time in history, this might be one of those moments. But we're going to be in this series all throughout the summer. This is a book where Paul is defending the gospel message against some false teachers who have crept into the area of Galatia. Galatia is a region. It's not a city. It's a region that would be like an Asia Minor. And they have come and they've told the Galatian believers, your faith in Jesus is not good enough to save you. It has to be that along with you becoming a Jew. That would include circumcision. That would include following all of the Mosaic law. That would include all these things. And so Paul is writing back to them and saying, ardently, that is not the case. And he's defending the gospel message. It's his most fiery of letters that he ever writes. This is one that like, there's usually a a greeting where he starts off with like saying, hey, I'm so thankful for you. And the place where he usually would give thanksgiving and a prayer for them, he starts immediately attacking So this is a a hot, fiery letter. It's a great one for us to unpack, and we're going to be unpacking it over these next few weeks. Um, I want to reiterate, we've got the record-setting night coming up this coming Wednesday. I promise you this will be a blast. There's going to be tons of records for all ages, so there's going to be something there for you, and if you've got kids, they will not want to miss it. You'll be able to get your your name on a plaque that we'll put somewhere with whatever record you won. (laughs) So... Let's dive um, in here and let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is living, that it is powerful, that it changes hearts and lives. And Father, as we are opening it up today, I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom to see it correctly. Lord, I pray that we would not just see it correctly, but that we would allow it to change us from the inside out. God, we want to be changed people because we have encountered you through your word. We give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen. Before you grab a seat, if you'll turn the person next to you, tell them your number one pet peeve. Your number one pet peeve out of everything that there is. What's the one thing that just gets underneath your skin? Three, two, one, go. Go for it. Anybody struggle narrowing it down to one? (laughs) Mine would be people who take 10 million years to turn. (laughs) There's a part of my soul that when I'm driving and that happens, it just breaks. (laughs) And I have to, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, because if I had missiles attached to my car, I'd be in prison. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) It would be all bad. (laughs) It would be bad. we, we all have a lot of different uh, pet peeves and things that can get us riled up in a moment. I want to start this morning by talking about picking the right fight. Picking the right fight. Um, my mom, I remember as a kid, um, she used to say this to me and my brother. She said, listen, whatever you do in school, wherever you're at, do everything you can not to get into a fight. Try to avoid it. Bypass it. Like, try to be peacemakers, de-escalate the situation. Like, it's not worth it. But then it always ended with something like this. But (laughs) if that moment comes and you have to, 
you do everything you can to win, <laughs> right? It was one of those like, you know, you better defend yourself. You better defend your brothers. You better, you know, if it comes to it, then you need to do it. If it's the right fight, then you better stand for the right thing. It better be like, if you're going to fight, someone better be getting bullied. And in which case, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to be right by your side type of a thing. We need to learn to pick the right fight. Paul today is going to pick the right fight, but it's a, it's a tense moment. But we love those moments as humans, don't we? Right, you're walking through Walmart, you're walking through somewhere, and like you just kind of see there's like family drama that's going on, and suddenly you're like, well, I'm going to hop into one of these aisles and just listen for a little bit. I'm just looking, oh, I'm, so I'm shopping for cereal right now. You know, you're like, next thing you know, that's kind of like one of those moments. Um, we need to learn because when we don't pick the right fight or when we avoid the right fight, tragic things can happen. Prior to World War II, Neville Chamberlain was the British prime minister, and he flew from England to Germany to meet with Adolf Hitler. And he was assessing Hitler's intentions and Hitler's motives and what he was really about and whether or not England needed to prepare for war. They had just not long gotten out of World War I and the entire world wanted nothing to do with war. No one wanted another world war. No one wanted anything to do with it. They wanted to avoid it at all costs. So Neville Chamberlain flies to Germany on a multiple different occasions, and he starts meeting with Hitler and trying to assess his motives and trying to determine, is this man really, like, psychotic? <laughs> or does he just kind of want to expand his territory a little bit? In one of the most infamous of speeches, he returns back to England after coming to an agreement with Hitler, and everyone is cheering, and they're they're applauding and like there's there's people just desperate waiting for Neville to land and he lands and he gets out of the plane and like the crowds are cheering as he says I have gotten for us peace in our time never had there been a greater lie spoken than that moment Neville Chamberlain bypassed the fight that he needed to pick up and in doing so in just a matter of very short time, everyone in, in England will in, initially, they'll just oust Never Chamberlain and they'll end up putting in Winston Churchill because he had let their country get to the point that they were not even remotely prepared for war. That had they been invaded right at the moment when Hitler initially wanted to, England would have been wiped out. He bypassed the fight that was needed because he just wanted the peace. The thing is this, there are things that are worth fighting for. There are things that are worth dying for. Fighting for the betterment of our family. Fighting against things that opposes our wishes to harm your children. Fighting for a culture in our church that looks to give love and grace and kindness to every single person who walks through the doors. Those are things that are worth fighting for. Today we're going to see that the Apostle Paul, he's going to pick the right fight but I'm just going to be honest with you, it's a dicey one. This is none other than the Apostle Peter. This is the guy who with Jesus, like he, he walked on water as Jesus enabled him until he kind of like took the wrong direction and got a little panicky and then he sank. <laughs> this is the Apostle Peter that preached on the day of Pentecost and over 3,000 people were brought into got saved and were brought into the church. This is the Apostle Peter that like people saw as the bedrock of the church and the Apostle Paul is going to oppose him to his face because it was the right fight and Peter was in the wrong. 
And you and I are here today because of this fight. Because of this moment whenever the Apostle Paul opposed Peter for the right reason. And so we're going to be brought into that story today. But in order to fully understand that story, we've got to do a little bit of recap. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're going to dive into it one more time. So I need to give you a little bit of historical backdrop on the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law is what essentially made someone a Jew. It's what they followed. It was handed down from Moses, and then it was a a series of traditions that kind of kept creeping and getting more and more and more and more and more and more added to it. Um, They kept adding to the point that, like, you had to ceremonially wash your hands before doing almost anything. You had to, uh, there was, like, one story I heard of where, like, um, you've heard the saying, like, home is where you lay your hat. Well, part of that comes back to the fact that there was like a certain distance that was determined you could walk on the Sabbath. But if you didn't live close enough to the synagogue, what you would do is you would hammer a peg that was within that distance that you needed, and you'd put your hat there, and you would say, that's my home, and so home is where my hat is. So I can now walk from the hat to the synagogue, and I'm not breaking the Sabbath laws or the Mosaic laws because I'm close enough to it. This is crazy, right? <laughs> like, we, we laugh today, but this is stuff that, like, people did this kind of stuff, it, and it's because they had turned it into all these rules and regulations and things. But the Mosaic law was broken down into three separate parts, okay? It was civil, ceremonial, and moral. I'm going to give you an example of each. So civil law. Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 says, don't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a civil law. It's telling you about how to treat your animals, okay? Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 also says, when you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you will not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls off your roof. So in Israel, their roofs were flat. But they also would often go up there for like celebrations and parties and things like that. So in the Mosaic law, they said, listen, put a fence around the top of your house so that no one falls off and dies and then someone sues you. Now, that's a pretty good law, right? That's important. That's needed because I I don't want you falling off my roof. (laughs) But at the same time, that's not something that like, I I don't know about you, but I don't have a flat roof today. Uh, Does anybody in this house in, in here have a flat roof? In America, we don't typically build them that way unless it's a business. This is semi-flat, but it's even sloped up above. So the question then becomes, does every single one of these apply to Christians today? And the answer is, of course not. We don't design our homes the same, and then most of us in this room don't own an ox. (laughs) Right? So we see that in the Mosaic Law, the civil aspect of it that was tied to the nation of Israel doesn't apply anymore. Secondly, there was ceremonial. Okay, give you a couple examples of these. In ceremonial, one of them was this from Numbers chapter 15. Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak that you wear of your garment. You're to make tassels on the corners of your garment, and then one of those, um, you're supposed to have a blue cord on each one of those tassels, a single blue cord. And the purpose of that was you'll have these tassels to look at and to remember the commands of the Lord that you'd obey them whenever you're in this opposing land. So they would have these four different tassels, that would be on the edges of their, their garment, and they would have a blue cord that would remind them of the commands of God. It was the ceremonial way that Jewish men dressed, okay? And they, they wore these. In fact, whenever you read the story of, like, the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she was grabbing that tassel. She was grabbing a reminder of the commands of God, and she was healed in the midst of that process. Another one would be the like hand-washing 
or what you could eat, what you could wear. Um, circumcision. These were ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law that were in, in there. And Jesus himself even overthrew the ceremonial law. He, he looks at the Pharisees and he, at the time when he's talking to them and he says, you say that like my disciples are unclean because they haven't washed their hands right before they ate and so that they're breaking the Mosaic law. And he says to you, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean. He's like, it's all the junk in your heart. <laughs> It's the things that you have inside you. And he looks at the Pharisees and he's like, you have all these things inside you. You have such hatred towards people. That's what makes you unclean. So church history, this, this is a, a little bit what we end up seeing. Um, then there's the moral laws. There's don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't use dishonest scales, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't worship other gods. All of these are not only um, upheld they're actually increased in the New Testament. Jesus will say, you've heard it say, don't commit murder. I tell you to hate another person at the core of your heart is equivalent to murder. He says, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I've, I say to you, if you look at another person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You see, what we see here is that the civil and the ceremonial as the gospel spreads to the Gentiles do not apply. But the moral is upheld and even strengthened. I'll give you another example of this. And this actually is going to come from the life of Peter. And it's going to be important for the story today. So the gospel starts to spread. And what we see here is there is an issue. Because to this point, every person that's being saved was a Jew. So they had grown up in Jewish culture. Everything that they had done their entire life was fully, completely based on the Mosaic Laws. They never wore a piece of clothing that had like two different kinds of fabric. They had never eaten shrimp. They had never eaten bacon. This is a tragic, sad life, <laughs> right? Can you imagine a life without bacon? Like there's, I, there, I'm crying on the inside right now. I'm, I am thankful that I'm a Gentile. I'm not a, like, like bacon is like, thank you, Lord. Right? I, all blessings flow. Like I, I'm just like, I'm for bacon, pro-bacon. Um, but Every person who had been saved to this point had been a Jew. They had lived under it. L let me give you an example of the importance of culture. We're going to do a word association test. Haley, when I say 4th of July, what comes, just give me a word. Fireworks. Kip, when I say Memorial Day, what word comes to mind? Cemetery. Whenever I say cookout, what comes to mind? Grill. All right. Now, here's the thing. If you say, and you go to like another country, like let's say, I don't know, pick almost any country in the world, and you say 4th of July, they're like, a date, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it means nothing to them. Unlike us, we're like fireworks, music, friends, celebrating the independence of our country. Like it's loaded with history. So what you have is the gospel starts to spread. It's going to people who are loaded with culture and history. But then something crazy happens. There's a Gentile and his name's Cornelius. And he's praying and God gives him a vision and says, there's going to be a man by the name of Paul who's going to be sent to you, and he's going to tell you about the gospel. The exact same time, Paul's at home, and he's doing his thing, right? He's in his little prayer closet, and he's praying, and then he has a very disturbing dream. He gets this picture of this tablecloth descending from heaven, and it's full of all the animals he's never ate because he's a ceremonial Jew. And Jesus says, take and eat, and Peter goes, no. 
He goes, God, I, I, that would make me a sinner. I can't do that. I've never ate bacon in my life. I think part of him was like, no, please, please. Like, <laughs> like I, don't, I don't know. That's just, but like, he, he's, like, he's like, no, I'm not doing it. And Jesus says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Okay? And he's like, he's dumbfounded by this. So Jesus says a second time, take this and eat. And he's going, Lord, I can't do this. I'm a Jew by birth. I have followed these laws my whole life. He has no clue what's going on. And as he's sitting here and he's wondering, what is this dream about? There's a knock on the door. He's like, what? Door opens up and there's a guy there. And he's like, "Uh, can you come with me? The master of my house, Cornelius, needs you. He arrives on the scene and he sees this Gentile who's desperate for God. And Paul witnesses to him, and he receives Christ, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and Paul's mind is blown. He had no concept that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. It's a phenomenal moment, incredible moment. But suddenly, what we see is Paul comes back to the Jerusalem church, and instantly they're like, were you eating with the Gentile? (laughs) How dare you? And Paul's like, let me tell you a story. Not Paul, sorry. Peter's like, let me tell you a story. He's like, I received this vision. I went there. I preached the gospel to them. They repented. They were saved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church's mind is like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Jesus said we were going to go to the utter parts of the earth, but we thought we were going to go there and like rescue Jews. (laughs) I had no concept that this was going to go out to the Gentiles. And so then the question then becomes the church is wrestling with in the early days is, So then how are the Gentiles saved? How are we all saved? What does that mean? And where does Judaism play into this? And where do all these these laws and these ceremonial things kind of come into play? The question becomes, how and what ways does salvation go to the Gentiles? Everyone who had been saved to that point had been a Jew. They had lived their whole life under the Mosaic law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. They lived with strict dietary laws, and now the gospel is going to people that their whole life they've ate bacon. It's going to all people that their whole life they've had shrimp, and they've done all these different things. And so the question is like, what is this about? And so what we see is this. I want to talk to you about the fight today, the fight for the gospel. So round one, we've got Peter and Cornelius. It happens. So it settles the score. The gospel can go to the Gentiles. The second happens is that Paul goes to Jerusalem with a Gentile convert by the name of Titus, okay? It's, uh, there's a book in the Bible called Titus that it's written to this individual, and, and Paul brings him to Jerusalem with him, and he's a Gentile. And so when he arrives there, he's with Paul, but the Jewish believers there are trying to tell him, hey, Titus, in order to be a real Christian, you have to become a Jew. You have to fall underneath all these laws, all these things. And Paul's like, absolutely not. And they're like, Titus has to be circumcised. And he's like, nope, not happening. And he fights them on it and he wins. So Paul doesn't, I mean, Titus doesn't get circumcised. They they leave the area. Round three is the one we're going to talk about today. Okay, this is the dicey one. It's where Peter and Paul have a little bit of a a scuffle. (laughs) And then there's the Galatians, the book that we're in right now. Paul is writing to the Galatian believers and he's telling them, listen, if you accept circumcision, if you really think that in order to be saved, you must do these things to earn it, Jesus is worthless to you. 
He's going to say, if you can add anything to your salvation other than faith in what Christ has done, your salvation is debunked. It's worthless. He's going to fight that. And the reason he's going to fight it in Galatians is because of the fight he had with Peter at Antioch. And Antioch is kind of like a suburb. It's technically in Galatia. But Paul was actually sent out on a missionary journey from the city of Antioch. He was sent on some of these areas that he's going to. He was funded by them. When he returns, he hears that all these other people have come in and started to teach them all these false things, and he has to essentially reprimand them for it. And then he writes the book of Galatians. And then after he finishes Galatians, Antioch goes, okay, we need to settle this definitively. And they send Paul, they send Barnabas, and they send Peter and all the apostles to Jerusalem for an important council to determine once and for all. This happens in Acts 15. And you're going to see Peter has changed, okay? So today we're going to see Peter has made a mistake. By Acts 15, it'll start, and Peter's going to go, the gospel's going to the Galatians, going to the Gentiles. The gospel is going out there. We need to completely not hold them to what we've been, the Mosaic law. They need to follow it from the moral aspect, and they need to do a few other things. But, and then Paul and Barnabas get up and basically say the exact same thing. And then the early church fathers go, we agree. And they make a decision once and for all. But that happens after the book of Galatians is written. So we, we've got these different rounds. And, and round five is kind of like the total knockout punch. Paul def- decisively wins. Um, and we find this in Acts 15. And it says this. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual morality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So that's where they end up landing in regards to this. But let's talk about today, round three, food fight. We have to understand the context in which this is written um, because it's so important. You may be reading this going, what's the big deal they're arguing over a meal? Paul's opponents, um, Timothy George says it this way, these people were Jews first and they were Christians second. If Gentiles were to be accepted into Christian fellowship at all, it could only be through the basis of their strict adherence to the Mosaic law. This meant that males had to be circumcised. It meant that they had to be physically brought into the covenant. They had to physically become Jews. They had to physically, the only way they would say that you could be saved is if you were now a Jew and then accepted Christ, then you could be saved. Paul's going to argue directly against this. So there was this meal that would take places in churches and it was called an agape love feast. This was an incredibly important meal. In fact, it would be, for some of the slaves, the best meal that they had all week long. They would gather together as a church. It would be like the best church potluck. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we have some good potlucks around here. We've got some good cooks in this room. When it's like a bring your best meal type of a thing, it's like, I better wear my stretchy pants because it's going to be good, right? It's one of those moments. (laughs) So it was a potluck where they would come and they would pool all their stuff together and they would, as a church, have this very important meal where at the meal they would partake in communion. They would remember the Lord's Supper. They would do this together. So Paul comes and he preaches the gospel and in Antioch you've got at the same table 
you've got the kingdom of God on display. You've got Jew sitting across from Gentile. Slave sitting across from free. Man and woman, every race, all together, sharing in this meal because they are one in Christ. It's this beautiful display of the gospel and what the gospel does. But Paul goes off on a short trip and Peter comes and, and a few others and, and Peter takes part in the meal. He, he, I mean, he's, he's eating with the Gentiles. He's breaking bread with them. He, he, he's doing all of this. But then some people from Jerusalem, they show up, these people who believed that the only way you could be saved was to become a Jew first. The only way you could be saved is, is to be circumcised. The only way you could be saved is if you did all these things and then put your faith in Jesus, right? And they start like teaching this and, and, and P- Peter starts getting a little nervous and so he sits at the other table. And suddenly you see what was this most beautiful meal. There's now two tables, one that has Jews one that has Gentiles. (laughs) Now, as you've seen from the book of Galatians, Paul's always not the best at filtering. (laughs) He comes back and he takes one look, right? I'm telling you, I would have loved to have been there that day. Can you imagine? Like Paul comes back, he comes walking in and he sees the two tables and he instantly knows what's happening and he sees Peter and Barnabas of all people is that one and then all the Gentiles are at the other and he's like, oh no, no, no. <laughs> not today. Not on my watch. And he goes up to the Apostle Peter and he's just basically like, he, he, he's like, what are you doing? You're doing the exact opposite of the gospel. You know, Peter's arrival, it comes and he shares at first this meal, but then he separates. He, he, he does the exact opposite. But, I need to, but in order for us to even understand the fight, we need to understand the power of a meal. Okay? Um, how many of you remember whenever, like, at family functions, you moved from the kids' table to the big, the adult table? You remember that day? That was like a great day. You're like, I'm no longer at the little table. I'm at the big table. When you would, in their ancient time, have a meal, it wasn't like we we are today. Our dinners consist of fast food, pizza, (laughs) a burrito on the run, right? You're you're ordering Taco Bell. You haven't even, you've finished half your meal before you're out of the parking lot (laughs) and still not happy. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm not the biggest Taco Bell fan. But it's one of those like, their time was completely different. The evening meal would easily take place over a couple hours. Two, three, four. It'd come out in courses. If you were to invite someone to come and share the meal with you, that was a massive honor. Who you ate a meal with showed your place in society showed where you stood, it showed what you believed, it showed what you accepted. Jews would never, ever, ever, before Christ, share a meal with a Gentile, ever. Wouldn't happen. So this meal, it was more than just a meal. This meal, when a table would be set, I mean, there there was preparation that went into it. 
Um, in fact, there would be times where, like, people would want to follow a rabbi, and they would, like, invite themselves, like, hey, you know, could, would you come to my house and share a meal with me? And oftentimes, sometimes, that rabbi would say, like, no, and he would say no, because essentially what he was saying is, you're not good enough for me. You're not worthy enough for me to come to your house. It was one of the saddest things that could kind of happen in society. And so people were very careful whenever they would invite and ask themselves to someone's meal and, and, and do this. So what we see is this, though. One of the things that Jesus was typically, repeatedly um, <laughs> yelled at for was that he ate with Gentile dogs and wicked sinners. Jesus himself freely associated himself with those people. You see, the, the context of this meal and their time together, was, it was a time where you would be like sharing intimacy with this person. You'd be inviting them into your home. You're saying, I approve of you. I love you. I associate myself with you. It was a hospitality culture. This culture where you, you would literally bring someone up and, and when you invited them there, it met the world to them and you would get time alone with them that's why jesus often some of his most intimate moment with his disciples is what around a meal because it's his time alone with him where he's sharing his time with them in fact some of the greatest moments that again that we talked about where he, he gets slammed for there's a moment he's sharing in the evening meal and um a prostitute walks into the room whose life has been changed by jesus and instantly the head of the table is just like, what is she doing here? Like, why would you even allow her to be in this room? And she, she starts weeping and she's crying over Jesus' feet. And she's washing his feet with her hair. And she pours expensive perfume on his feet and she's kissing his feet. And Jesus doesn't reprimand her. He reprimands the host of the house. He says, since I arrived, you didn't even give me a customary kiss on the cheek. Since I arrived, you didn't anoint my head with oil. Since I arrived... Like, I've just kind of been like a second class, like, you're happy that I'm here. But since she's arrived, she's not quit kissing my feet. Since she's arrived, she's not quit giving me honor. And he says, essentially, like, she's been forgiven of so much, and so she is so thankful for it. Jesus elevates her in that moment in front of everyone. And so when Jesus would go and he would eat and he'd partake of these meals with Gentiles, with sinners with the lowest of the lowest what he was doing is he was bringing the kingdom of god to them he was drawing them near and saying it's for you too there's this powerful thing and so the meal was more than a meal we don't have the full context of the meal but we know that it also contained the lord's supper the partaking of his broken body for us it was a part of that church's common life together give you one example from Jesus's life and this is from Mark chapter 2 it says then Jesus went up to the lakeshore again and he taught the crowds that were coming to him and as he walked along he saw Levi son of Alphaeus sitting at his tax collector's booth tax collectors were the lowest of the lowest Jews hated them because they saw them as like Jewish turncoats they saw them as people who were serving the Roman Empire to swindle them and he says to him follow me and be my disciple so Levi gets up and he follows him. And later Levi invites Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I love that line. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, 
Why does he eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call those who think that they're righteous. I've come not to those who think they're righteous. I've come to those who know that they're sinners. I wanted you to read this quote with me from Timothy George. And he says, by freely associating with notorious sinners and Gentile dogs in the fellowship of a shared meal, Jesus was in effect announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God in his own person. By his radical act, he also was saying that the measure of one's true standing before God could no longer be measured in terms of obedience to the Mosaic law. A far greater eternal significance was one's relationship with Jesus, the only person who perfectly fulfilled the law. So the question becomes, why is this such a big deal? It's because there's people on the outside looking in. There was a day that all of us in this room were here. And the kingdom of God was there. And we were broken and we were distanced. And we could look at a love that didn't even remotely make sense to us. And so the question of what gets you to the table becomes of supreme importance. Is it what Christ has done? Or do I find my seat at the table based on what I've done? Paul sees this as of utter importance because he knows that there's people on the outside looking in. He knows that there's people who are hurting, who are broken, that the kingdom is meant to reach out to. One of the greatest players in the NFL right now, he's a cornerback for the Kansas City Chiefs, sometimes plays safety. He was one of the best defensive players in college football over the last two decades. He played for LSU before he was kicked off the team for substance abuse. Despite having that on his resume, he was drafted still pretty high, and he ended up with first the Texans, I'm sorry, with the Cardinals first, then he went to the Texans, ultimately to the Kansas City Chiefs, and his name is Tyron Matthew. Tyron Matthew is a stud, is an incredible football player. There was an article, though, that was asking what was his motivation behind all of it. The article's name was, One Question Has Tortured Tyron Matthews' Entire Life. He's not sure he wants the answer. This is what the author writes. This is just a few weeks ago. Tyron Matthew woke up in his big bed in his big house in the middle of his big contract with the Houston Texans. And the first thing that he felt was anger or emptiness or inadequacy or something. Matthew, who is 26, has for better or worse conditioned himself to be comfortable in chaos, including that of his own making, in part because years ago he vowed to reach football's mountaintop, not because of size or speed, but through fearlessness and will. You see, because of his size, he really shouldn't be playing in the NFL. That would be the only way to convince his family, specifically his mother, that he was worth something. That Tyron was worth keeping. The boy assumed that he had to earn his mother's love, and maybe if he ran the football hard enough, she would invite him home someday. 
If the game someday paid him enough to buy her a house, perhaps they could live in it together. So he tackled with bad intentions, ran track, performed the long jump as if his future depended on it, got in opponents' faces, trained harder, talked louder, made himself the most outlandish of promises because maybe fulfilling them would somehow convince her. My whole point, he says, was to prove I was worth something like anything. Soon Matthew says Tyra will be returning to Houston, and he says he hopes to sit across from his mother and during a quiet moment finally be able to ask why. Why did she abandon him all those years back? Why couldn't she love and accept him? Why didn't she think about how it might affect him? On the surface, his fiancée says, this drive seems to have helped him to reach the pinnacle of his career. But the article reveals with talking with him and her it's also drove him to the greatest depths of depression, to drugs, to compulsive fits of anger. She said in some ways it's helping him, but in most of the other ways it's absolutely destroying him. Tyron's trying to get to the table. The truth of the matter is that if our seat at the table is based at all on anything that we can or do, then Jesus' death was meaningless. If I can get here based on my energy, on my efforts, on my abilities, what was the cross about? See, the truth of the matter is is that grace is a free gift that is offered to all. If you have to do anything to earn or deserve grace, it's no longer a gift. If I ask you, hey, we, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you $50. And you're like, oh, that's so exciting. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm like, cool, here's the gift. But by the way, I need you to come and I need you to mow the lawn for like the next five weeks. <laughs> that ceases to be a gift. It's no longer a gift. It's a wage. And the thing is this, we already have a wage. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We've already paid the wage. Jonathan Edwards, he, we talked about this a week ago, he said it the best. The only thing you and I ever did in the process of our salvation was our sin that made it needed. The only thing we can add to the process of salvation was the sin that required Calvary. And Paul is saying here, and he's looking at Peter, and he's seeing Peter distance himself. The Gentiles are at this table. Peter's over there, and he's saying, by your actions, you're displaying a false gospel. You're saying they're not worthy of the big table. You're saying by your actions that they don't really deserve to be there yet, that there's something that they have to do to earn it. And he looks at him, and he's going, I know how important you are. I know that Jesus loves you. I know your place in all this, but let me tell you something, Peter. You are wrong and it has to stop now nothing we can do can earn the love of God it is freely given to us in Christ nothing we could do can earn the grace of God it is freely given to us in Christ Paul to Peter is saying listen you're saying that we by nature are Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. He's not talking about the moral law when he says sinners there. He is saying we're not Gentiles. We didn't like eat shrimp our whole life. That's what he's saying, okay? What he's saying is that though, you and I have also both agreed it's impossible to be made right with God through the Mosaic law. It's impossible. 
We gave this illustration um, a while back. I'll give it to you again. It'd be like this. It'd be like your car, the engine just blew up, which I hope it didn't happen to you this week, because if so, then I'm just rubbing salt in your wound. Um, <laughs> let's say your engine blew up and you took it to the car repair place, wherever you take it to. You bring it in, you have it towed there, they, they bring it in and they take one look at it and they tell you, hey, by the way, your engine blew up. And you're like, oh, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. I guess I can drive it now, it's fixed. <laughs> right? You're like, well, th th that's not how that works. <laughs> right? Well, no, 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 but you looked at it and so it's fixed now. So I, I can just take it and I can drive it. In fact, if I have you look at it a few more times, it'll be even more fixed. Or if you've got cancer and you go to the doctor and you get a scan and it tells you you have cancer. If you think that just because you got scanned that somehow now you're healed, that doesn't work that way, right? No, the law cannot save. The law does a scan and says, you need a savior. The law looks at you and goes, let me show you how broken you are. Let me show you how far from God you are. Let me show you how you have lied, how you've cheated, how you've stolen. Let me show you that you are in desperate need of a Savior to come and rescue you. And let me show you that there is one who's come who's filled the law perfectly. And his name is Jesus. And if you will put your faith in what he's done and accomplished, he takes your sin as his own. And his righteousness that is his own he gives to you. What you didn't earn is given, and what you have earned is taken. And because of that, we have a seat at the table. Paul's reasoning says it can't be that the Gentiles come to God by grace and the Jews by the law. There's only one way it's grace. Listen, the danger of Peter's actions is that in effect, it would force Gentile believers to think that they must become a Jew to partake in circumcision in order to be saved. To a degree, his actions were speaking a false gospel. He says to Peter, we agree that no amount of observance of the Mosaic law can ever make a person right with God. It's a matter of grace. And so we get to this vital truth where he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, Christ died with no purpose. See, Paul's explanation is if there was any way that I could put myself in the good grace of God because of observance to the law, then why did Jesus die? In fact, Paul will say if you truly believe that observance could save you or plays a part in your salvation, then Jesus' death was worthless. It's pointless. It has no purpose at all. See, the truth is this, is that the gospel changes everything. I had us earlier, Grady, if you want to come up and play behind me, ask about pet peeves. I'll tell you about one of mine. One of my greatest pet peeves is when religiosity takes over and people turn their nose to people who are hurting and are broken, forgetting <laughs> that was me. Remember, uh, I was doing youth ministry many, many, many years ago. And I was at Virginia Beach. It's the first vacation me and my wife had ever taken. And uh, <clears throat> I'm walking down the streets of the boardwalk, and 
enjoying my time, enjoying it, and out of nowhere, um, I'm walking up, and there's a group of teenagers, which I'm really passionate about teenagers. I've been with them for years and actually decades now, which makes me feel super old. <laughs> but I'm sitting there, and there's this, this guy, and he's got this sign, and he's just screaming at teenagers how all of them are going to go to hell. not showing any grace, any love, any kindness. He's not preaching the gospel. He's not doing any of that. He's just looking at all of them, and he's screaming with, like, one of those, like, microphones that's, like, the little bullhorn type thing. So we walk past it, me and my wife, and we're holding hands, and I stopped, and I got ready to turn around, and my wife grabbed me, and she looked at me, and she goes, we are not going to jail today. <laughs> it was, uh, and I'm like, baby, she goes, we are on vacation. <laughs> She's like... See, the gospel sees the broken, the hurting, the lost. And it invites them to the table. It says, Jesus is all you need. Listen, he will meet you as you are, but he won't leave you that way. He will change you from the inside out. He will make you more like him. He will come in on the inside and he will change your passions and your desires and he will clean you up and strengthen you. But listen, you don't clean yourself up and then get to the table. You get to the table and there he cleans you. Because listen, let's just be honest, the most important moments of our life, a lot of them have happened at the table. I came to faith in Christ sitting across the table from my dad long, many, many years ago as a kid, as I came home after service one Sunday and I sat across from him and I'm like, I know Jesus and I want to follow him with my life. And my dad and me, we sat here and we prayed at a table and we prayed and we, and we invited Jesus into my heart to be Lord of my life. It was at a table that I got down on one knee and I asked my wife, babe, I love you more than anything in the world. Will you marry me? It was at a Damon's. I don't know why I picked Damon's. That was a bad choice. <laughs> like, she doesn't even like ribs and I took her to a rib restaurant. I was young and dumb. It's at a table. We come home after making lots of mistakes, and mom and dad bring us back to the table, and they say, you're still a part of this family, and I love you. And I'm for you, and I'm not against you. It's at the table that we're brought near, where we know each other, to the table where the board games come out and we spend late into the night hours. <laughs> Some of those aren't great table experiences. I would not suggest risk to anyone. <laughs> Most of my fights as a teenager came over that game. I got banned from playing it. Here's the truth, though. The gospel seeks to bring people to the table, not to keep them from it. I'll tell you another story. Another time I almost got arrested. Um, <laughs> I was a youth pastor, and uh, we had this girl who had started coming to youth, and she had a really jacked up home life, was really broken. She had made a lot of poor choices, but God had just done something in her heart. She was longing to grow more like him. Um, but as what typically happens, she ended up in a relationship she shouldn't have been in with a guy she never should have been with, and he was just dragging her from every good, positive relationship in her life. You know, she's like 15, 16 at the time. 
and she knew it was bad for her, and so she, there, our annual fall retreat was coming up, and she so desperately wanted to get close to God that she had no money. She worked like crazy to raise the money for fall retreat, and she paid it out of her own money because her mom never would. And she said, Pastor Josh, I'm giving you this money now because I want to go to retreat, and I know that he's coming back, and he's going to do everything he can to keep me from it. And so I want to pay for it now because I know if it's coming out of my money that I'll still go. Day of retreat comes and I get a text message. Pastor Josh, I'm not coming to retreat. Um, I'm, I'm going to stay back um, with him. I was just getting out of the shower. I had just shaved. I was prepping for a retreat. And uh, I think my wife actually saw the text message before I did. And she's kind of hesitant to show me. She shows it to me, and I said, okay. Got my clothes on, started to head to the door, grabbed my car keys, because I was going to her house. I knew that he was going to be there, too. And so my wife grabs my hand as I'm exiting the door, and she goes, babe, someone's got to preach at retreat. Please don't get arrested. (laughs) 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 It's like this, like, plea right as I'm going out, right? And I come walking out there, and I, and I drive to her house, and, I, and I, I get in there, and I, and I can see, like, you know, the curtains moving, like, oh, crud, the pastor's here, right? I come knocking on the door, and I'm like, dunk, 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 I'm waiting. There ain't no movement. Dunk, 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 waiting, no movement. And I'm like, I've got all day, you know? <laughs> so I send her a text message, like, we need to talk. Wait about five minutes, and I'm seeing in at the door, just waiting. Bing! Text message comes in. Pastor Josh, I'll be at retreat. <laughs> Got back in my car, drove home. See, because that girl was like a daughter to me. I would do anything I can to get her to the table. You've got a God who will do anything he can to get you to the table. Listen to me, some of you, no one's fought for your heart ever. And I apologize for that. But there is someone who has. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth so that you can get to the table. And Jesus came to this earth to fight for your heart. Jesus came to this earth to do battle with your deepest sin and darkest darkness. Jesus was planted on a tree with nails through his hands and his feet. He bled and he suffered and he died. He gave his last breath as he proclaimed over each one of us, it's finished, it's paid in full. Every wrong thing you've ever done, if you'll just come to me, I will absorb it all into myself and I will declare over you that you're my son, you're my daughter, you're made righteous in my eyes and that you have a place at the table your family come home listen the whole point of the gospel is to get us to the table the point of the gospel is Jesus goes no 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 I've saved a spot for you you want me to prove this to you and we prove this to you in revelation we get to this moment and Jesus says I stand at the door and I knock and if anyone will open the door I will come in and I will eat with them and they with me he's talking about the table anyone doesn't matter your past, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you've been, doesn't matter where you've gone, doesn't matter your deepest, darkest sin. Jesus is at the door and he's knocking. And if anyone will open the door, he says, I want relationship with you. I want to bring you home. Come to the table. See, Paul understood this. And Peter did too. But Peter made a mistake and he forgot. 
And so that moment happens. I'm telling you, I wish I could be a fly on the wall. Can you imagine Paul's face as he walks up to Peter? Well, we know from history, supposedly Paul was kind of a short guy. So he had that probably short guy syndrome. You know, I mean, those guys are fiery. Like, uh, I love it. Paul's just like, Peter, it's on. Because this is important. You better go back and sit with <laughs> Because this is the kingdom. See, under the gospel, there is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no man. There is no woman. We are all one together in Christ. All are welcome at the table the gospel changes everything it's only through the gospel we can live out the moral commands it's only when we get to the table and we see how deeply loved we are when we're here and we realize God says I love you this much that then I can change I can't change till I get there now God will empower me to change after I get here and Paul's going to talk about that too and we're going to even see that in Galatians. He's not going to disregard and be like you can just do whatever you want. But what he's saying is you got to first sit at the table. You got to first be a part of the kingdom. You got to first feel and experience his love and then he'll change you. Don't think you got to clean yourself up and then everything then you can come to the table. No. You come dirty and beaten and broken and at the end of your rope and it's there that Jesus meets you. It's there he brings you home. It's there he makes you family. It's there he calls you son or daughter. Don't you remember the story of the prodigal son? The father runs out and he meets his son who has literally been living in every way possibly that he can to bring disreputation to his father. But it says he's come to his senses and he's come home. His clothes are covered in animal feces. He's covered in mud. He reeks, he smells. His father is wearing the royal robes of a rich, wealthy dude. Got a Rolex watch on, right? <laughs> And it says he sees his son and he throws his arms around him. Perfection embraces filth. And he says, bring out the robe. Bring out the ring. My son has come home. The gospel welcomes everyone to the table, including you and me, because the gospel's fully about Jesus. Would you stand with me today? Worship team, if you want to make your way to the stage. The natural tendency of our humanity is to create classes and distinctions, and without even realizing it, we can do that too. There's people in your life right now, there's someone in your life right now that you're like, if you're being honest, I just don't know if there's hope for them. Do you realize that was the Apostle Paul? <laughs> he was the top of everyone's list. There's no hope for that guy. He kills Christians. And yet it's Paul who will fight for everyone to be able to be at the table. But maybe it's not for somebody else. Maybe it's for you. See, the gospel changes everything, even the way that we see ourselves in our story. For so many of us, we're so intimately aware of our brokenness and our sin and our past that we're like, you know what, God, I would love to sit there, but I really just don't think I'm worthy enough. I pray that today you would hear your Father in heaven looking at you going, oh, no, 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 no. 
I've got a seat saved. I've shined up a nice shiny plate just for you. Got some bacon ready. <laughs> if you're a vegetarian in the room, I'm sorry for offending you this whole message. <laughs> My prayer, though, is that we would be a church that fights to get people to the table, not keep them from it. I'm usually a pretty laid-back guy. But if there's anything that gets under my skin, it's watching religiosity Attempt to look down on someone and keep them from the table. Ooh, that burns me because it burns my father. All are welcome. There's someone in your life. There's someone that's a friend, a neighbor, a niece, a nephew, a cousin, a grandson, a daughter, a wife, a husband, a niece, an uncle. That person that you've known for 20 years. But there's someone that for a long time they've been sitting in the kids' table, they've been sitting at the seat and they've been looking and, they've, and there's been the kind of like the desire that's there and they've never said it to anybody else. I, I've always kind of wanted, but I just don't feel like I'm good enough, I'm worthy enough. Can we be people who are like the Apostle Paul doing everything we can to get people to the table? Who, who, who can you invite with you to church? Who, who can you at work go like, hey, can I pray over you? Can I just speak some life into your heart? Who, who in your family can you send a text message to say, I just want you to know I'm for you and I'm not against you. I just want you to know you are loved by God radically. Who in your life needs to know that Christ has a seat saved for them? And that the gospel's for them too. Who is it? My prayer is that as we leave here today, we would leave commissioned by the King of Kings to declare there's a seat for everyone. As we close out in this song, I want to pray over you and I want to commission you that as we walk out of this room today, can we do that? Can we be people that say, I will always make sure with everything that I can that everyone I come into contact with knows there's a seat at the table there's a seat for you there's a seat for me and I can tell you this I don't deserve my seat and yet my king of kings ushers me into it father I pray right now in the name of Jesus Lord I thank you for the gospel I thank you that you saved me a seat when I didn't deserve a seat God I thank you for the apostle Paul who fought for my seat Lord I know how anxious he must have been and how nervous he must have been in that moment but Lord he fought for my seat because the gospel was on the line. And Jesus, I pray right now that we would fight for that seat for somebody else. Lord, you are the God who saves, who changes, who makes us new, who cleans us up from the inside and out, but you do that after salvation, not before. You're the God who ushers everyone to come and see to taste and see that the Lord is good and that as we sit there with you, your presence changes us. Your spirit becomes alive in us. You change our motives. You change our desires. You change the trajectory of our life. You help us to see people differently. We no longer put people in classes. 
We don't treat people different based on the color of their skin. We don't treat people different based on where they've been. We don't treat people different than what they've done. We don't treat people different because of the things that they've taken part in. We don't treat people different for any of those things. Instead, we usher them in and say, please come sit at the table. And Jesus, would you allow this church to be about that? God, would you make us a church that there's always a seat saved? That when anyone walks through those doors, that they would encounter a family where they would feel loved, accepted, and made home. Jesus, we love you. We give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen. Would you sing this with us as we bring this to a close? But I just want to challenge you. Let's be people. Let's be a church that always saves a seat.